Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is because of his death on the cross that he was resurrected, and it was in his resurrection that he becomes called Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that Jesus has come to a new position, a new position of lordship, and he's come by way of resurrection because he was of his sacrificial death. And Jesus' resurrection is not his alone, for his resurrection and our resurrections are intimately connected. Jesus tasted death for everyone, to bring many sons to glory. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ shall all be made alive. And this general resurrection of all people is already experienced spiritually by his people. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians is just back. Go back a few pages to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is the human condition. We are all spiritually dead even while we live. Each of us, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, all of us under the wrath of God. Verse 4, but, B-U-T is one of the best words in the Bible, because the Bible keeps on condemning us, rightly, for our sinfulness, and then comes and gives us this lovely turnaround word, but, but, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but he has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. And notice, that's the past tense. It's not he will make us alive with Christ, he will raise us up with Christ, but he has already made us alive with Christ. He has already raised us up to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms. See, come back to our diagram that we have. Where are we sitting now? It's not between J and E. Where we're sitting now is up on the line R. Spiritually, physically, we are sitting between J and E. There is our problem. You see, if these are the seats of heaven, it's going to be fairly disappointing, isn't it? 
I would have liked more comfortable seating than what we have in Maru if we're going to sit here for the rest of eternity. I think that's very poor seating. But this is not the spiritual seating of heaven, this is the physical seating of Maru. The spiritual seating is with Christ. So spiritually, I have already been resurrected, while physically, I am still living a life that is dying, ageing, wrinkling, bagging, sagging, blinding, deafening. I am dying. That is what I am. You are too. It's just I started before you, so it is more manifest in my anatomy than it is in yours. But give it time. Give it time, my friends. At the moment, Jesus' resurrection has occurred, making him Lord. And Christian people, their resurrection has happened spiritually with him because of him. Though we are still physically here, waiting for the physical resurrection to take place. But why talk of us as lords? Well, because just as Jesus' resurrection does and will mean our resurrection, so also Jesus' lordship means our lordship. For notice what is said of Jesus' people. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try, to, to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you're in Christ Jesus, you are one of the judges of the world. Not just one of the judges of the world, but one of the judges of angels. We will sit in judgment over not only this world, but over the angelic world as well. Come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm reading from verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But you see there in verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. To reign, R-E-I-G-N, is to, is to be king. We will be kings with him if we endure. And so come across to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, where the great song is sung in heaven, Revelation 5, which describes what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for the nations. Revelation 5. When the Lamb comes and takes the scroll from the hand of he who sits upon the throne, and all the 
heavens and the earth start singing the praises of the Lamb, we read in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, language, and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We are to be kings who reign on earth. We are the priests of God. You'll find the same kind of thing in Revelation 22 verse 5. That is, God has made mankind to rule the earth. That is what is meant when it says that we were made in the image of God, back in Genesis chapter 1. God gave to us the world to subdue the world, to fill the world, to care for the world, to look after the world. We are to be the rulers of the world. Uh, Psalm 8 reflects upon that and asks, What is man that you are mindful of, and the son of man that you care for him? You gave him authority over all things, putting all things under his feet. That finds its fulfilment in Jesus. He is the son of man to whom everything has now been placed under his authority. But yet, it's not only him, but also us. Think with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and verses 3 and 4 about the resurrection. I'll pick it up in verse 1. As you turn it up, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Have you found verse 3 now? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. At the moment as I look at you, you look like any other group of Australian university students. Nothing particularly characteristic about you. I can't say that this is the most handsome, good-looking, beautiful people I've ever seen. I haven't noticed that you have a higher intelligent quotient than anybody else that I've ever come across. Or in, There's nothing about you that's unusual, particularly. And there's certainly nothing spiritually unusual. There is, in fact, but I can't see it. For if you're risen with Christ, you are spiritually sitting in heaven, which if this was a group of average university students, only 3 or 4% would be like that. But here is a group of people, most of whom have been raised with Christ to sit in the heavenly places, and yet you look completely normal. I don't see kind of flashing coming out of your eyes. I don't see a, a dinner plate halo behind your head. I don't see any kind of particular, because your life is a hidden life. You are hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ returns, then suddenly it will be seen. You will be seen for what you really are and who you really are. The kings of creation who are in Christ ruling the world with him. The judges of all the world. You will be seen in all your glory then, but not until then. And so look down to verse 10 of the same passage. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You are now being becoming more and more like God until that time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and you will be seen in all your glory at that occasion. 
So we're going to explore over these evening talks what does it mean to live now in the resurrection age? To live now as the Lord's under the Lordship of the risen Jesus Christ. And the first we look at, the Lord's over time. So let's take a few moments to think about time. Time and eternity. And we commence with a question, are we the slaves of time or the Lords of time? I mean, the world never seems to go at a quicker pace, and yet it never gets there any faster. We busily run and run, but we're never sure where we're going. For many people, there's a feeling that we are the slaves of time. Watches are strapped to our wrists so that you feel naked without them. You awaken to alarms in the morning. You have your diary on your phone to program your day and keep your appointments and start and finish on time. How often do we hear the media interviews? Well, we haven't got time to pursue this now. Or, well, thank you very much for your comments, but we haven't got time. Well, we have to run. We're running out of time. So our news is the same every night. doesn't matter what happens in the world. There's always 30 minutes of news. An extraordinary thing, really, isn't it, when you conjure it? It could be a completely boring day where nothing happens in the world, but we've still got 30 minutes of news. For that's the time. You see, the time controls the news rather than the news controlling the time. One of the lovely things about mid-year conferences, time kind of is different here. This talk goes longer time than you're expecting. <laughs> Don't bother timing it. It's a waste of time to do that. I've only put my watch here because it's a habit. But the slavery of time is more deep-seated than that. It comes from the meaninglessness of life that is derived either from materialism or spiritualism. Materialists think that there is nothing in reality other than this material existence. The world is the beginning and the end. Uh, classically, they're atheists, of course, or their more cowardly cousins called agnostics. Uh, here is one that has written recently, uh, Professor Grayling, A.C. Grayling, has written The God Argument, The Case Against Religion and for Humanism. And uh, it's an interesting read, is Professor Grayling's book. We've got a picture of Professor Grayling. He looks like uh, uh, an English professor. <laughs> if asked, he says on page 162, if asked what is the meaning of life, the correct answer is, what you make it. Specifically, what you make it for yourself, on the basis of thought followed by responsible choices that will survive challenge by others if they are sceptical about what you choose. He's a philosophy professor, and therefore he thinks that what you think matters when he thinks that what you think is irrelevant because there is no truth anyway. But you should at least be illogical, you should be logical in your non-truth. And you should be moral, because the second half of the book is a book argument for morality on the basis of meaninglessness. There is no meaning, therefore you have to make up the meaning, and the meaning you should make up is the one like I've made up, which is a moral meaning. But there is no meaning. And it's because he has been influenced by morality, namely Christian morality, that he is desperately trying to defend the idea of morality without meaning. However, Sam de Brito writes a blog 
called All Men Are Liars. He's the agony uncle of the Sydney Morning Herald. Only the agony uncle doesn't actually answer questions from people. We've got a picture of him. He's very much cooler than the professor, isn't he? I mean, he is <laughs> the modern man, isn't he, is uh, Sam. And he's not an agony uncle in the sense that you write in and say, please, Sam, what should I do about my girlfriend? Because his agony is describing his own life as uh, he tells you about himself endlessly, daily, weekly, whatever it is that comes out, as he describes his battles with alcohol, his battles with his missus, who's uh, separated from him, his battles in getting access to his daughter, his battles, his battles with life, which are pretty miserable, really battles. And he believes what Grayling says, because he's an atheist like Grayling, and this is, but you see, he's not a moral atheist, he's a degenerate atheist. And so he says, uh, I've been having an extended existential crisis the last few months about the meaning of life. The problem, as always is, there's no meaning to life, save what you choose to give it. And as grateful as I am for my daughter and the opportunities I have, well, sometimes it's not enough, damn it. Where's the, intent, the international acclaim for my novels? Where's my Charlie Sheen poor star threesome? Do I really only get to drive a friggin' Mazda 3? Is this it? Life is meaningless other than the meaning you make. And the meaning I make is not worth having. He quotes Pink Floyd's song that he's listening to, which is full of negativity, and the novel by a Slovenian writer, Vladimir Bartol, which says, nothing is true, everything is permitted. So it's classic atheism that we're talking of here which was borrowed as the mega-populous video game, he says, Assassin's Creed. Hands up those who have ever played Assassin's Creed or know anything about the ego. I knew nothing about that, but, <laughs> but that's the creed of Assassin's Creed, is it? That uh, nothing is true, everything is permitted, and you're still playing it. Well, good for you. As Bartol writes, he says, truth is unattainable to us. It doesn't exist for us. Those two lines actually don't logically connect. Just because it's unattainable for us doesn't mean that it's not there. They're two different things, aren't they? To lump from one from the other. However, he concludes, it's a lot of little things that make a full life, not just a child, a job or a threesome. You can find meaning in a Bible, a bottle or a basketball. Thankfully, like most Aussies, at least I get the chance to choose what the meaning of my life is. A luxury denied much of the world just trying to survive. Man, I've got to get a girlfriend. That's how he finishes the article. <laughs> May I suggest, ladies, he's not the man for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, what does he want a girlfriend for? Yeah. See, here's the degenerate outcome of the logic of Grayling. It's the same logic. One man wants to be moral, the other doesn't. But the logic is the same with atheism. There is no meaning other than the meaning you make up. Make up whatever meaning you want to make up. Make it up as meaninglessness if you wish to. Now, the alternative to materialists are the spiritualists. Spiritualists think that the problem is matter. 
Matter, in fact, doesn't exist for some of them. Matter is the deception. There is the eternal spiritual realm is all that is true, and so we must attune ourselves to the force, to the world spirit, to the one, to the eternal other or others. Classically, in the ancient world, you saw it in the Platonists, or more commonly, we now see it in Eastern mysticism. The New Age formulas, they're all the same. The physical world must be repressed because the spiritual world is the only one that really is there or matters. Now, whether it's the materialist or the spiritualist, the end point is the same. Life is meaningless. The atheist in his existential plays, uh, uh, Beckett and Waiting for Godot kinds of things, in the agony uncle and his meanderings, or the Buddhist accepting the pain of life, we don't matter, our time is an irrelevance, we're just an interruption to the endlessness of eternity. Within Buddhism, attachment is what creates pain. If I'm attached to anything, then when I lose it, I get hurt. So don't get attached to it. If you're attached to rugby, you're in Australian, you're in terrible pain now. <laughs> Those of you who don't care about rugby or don't care about Australia, you don't care, do you? <laughs> it's an irrelevance to you. At this moment, you're as happy as you were on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Nothing has happened to you because you weren't attached. And so detach yourself from everything in life and you will never suffer any pain. You don't have any pleasure. You don't have any meaning. You don't have any significance. You don't have your, you have his om, om, om. That's ultimately. It's the nirvana is the complete nothingness. You, you, you seek after nothingness because nothingness is the ultimate reality. But the Bible has a view of time and meaningfulness that's distinctive and profound, which comes out of the doctrine of creation and makes us not the slaves of time, but the lords of time. Notice what the Bible says about creation and eternity. For in Genesis 1.1 is the making of an enormous statement. God created the heavens and the earth. For there was a time when there was nothing in creation and there was a time when God created. God stands outside of creation in eternity, but creation is real within eternity, for it has been made by God. So the material world is real, yet the material world is not all that there is. And the one who rules over all is not some impersonal force, there's not some kind of force or being, the one from whom all things emanate, but there is a personal God who made, manufactured, created this world for his purpose and for his delight. Notice throughout Genesis 1 there is a repeated phrase, and God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. For he created purposefully for his pleasure by his word. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the earth by the breath of his mouth. And it was all made to achieve his design and his plan. Indeed, the chapter finishes up in chapter 1 verse 31 of Genesis. And he saw that it was good, very good. Everything made by God was good. 
The world and everything in it are part of God's good eternal plans. We're in Colossians last, weren't we? Go to Ephesians again, to the left a few pages. Ephesians chapter 1. There's one long sentence in verses 3 to 10 that most of our modern translations break up for us because under modern educational systems we're incapable of thinking long enough to behold ideas together for such a long sentence. But let's give it a try. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's a ripper sentence, isn't it? I mean, the ESV chops it into three sentences. Most of the other modern translations puts it into half a dozen sentences. It's all one sentence. It's all interconnected. Notice in verse 4, it's talking about before the foundation of the world. Notice in verse 10, it's talking about a plan for the fullness of time. Here is a, in these, just these verses, 3 to 10, you move from before the world was made to the end time when the world comes to an end and we live just in the resurrection age. This is one of the purple passages of the Bible that you really need to study carefully and see how each of the clauses are connected to each other because the centre point of the great plan of God before the foundation of the world that is coming to the end of the world, the centre point is Christ. Repeatedly through it you'll find in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in him, in him. It's all about Christ, the plans and purposes of God. But we are caught up in the plans and purposes of God. For before the foundation of the world, he has chosen us. He has predestined us. Yes, the word is there. It's there in this passage because the Bible believes in predestination, because the Bible believes in God, a God who is really God, who predestines what's going to happen. Before the world was made, God had chosen what was going to happen at the end of the world. And what was going to happen in the world, end of the world involves you and me. And so before the world was made, before you and I were made, before you and I were a twinkle in our parents' eyes, God had chosen our eternal destiny. That is what is being said here. And that eternal destiny is all found in Christ because God's eternal plan, which is made known to us, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight in verse 8, God's eternal plan was to sum up everything under the Lordship of Christ, unite everything under Jesus Christ. The whole world and all people and all people who were redeemed were made and redeemed in order to be with Christ at the end of all times. For Christ is to be the Lord of all. Here is the purpose of God. And we are predestined to fulfil God's plan. Let me not beat about the bush. Being created means being meaningful. However, our meaning is not determined by us, but by our creator, by our owner, by our judge. 
So our freedom is determined by God's rule. Now I'm sure during the course of this week we'll be talking about it and you'll be asking more questions on that kind of issue. But it's a big issue that you need to grasp hold of. It's liberating when you grasp it. Let's return to how we come. How come we are created and yet become slaves of time? But how did we become slaves of time? It all started with the tree of life. For there in the middle of the garden were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. It's a little hard to know if you ate the tree of life once you live forever or if you needed to keep eating the tree of life in order to live forever. But notice life is not intrinsic to humans. We have to have the breath of life breathed into us and we have to eat of the fruit of the tree of life in order to live forever. For when we failed and ate the, tree of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then we were driven out of the garden, away from the tree of life, so that we would not eat it and live forever. Because the promise for disobedience was death. And because sinful human beings have now taken into their own hands the knowledge of good and evil, so sinful human beings must not live forever. And so we're driven from the tree of life into the world of death. However, death does not mean we cease to exist. Beyond the grave there is life in our death. So the Bible talks of people going to their fathers in Genesis 25, verse 7, verse 35, verse 29. I'll give you those references again, look up later. Genesis 25, verse 7, verse 35, verse 20... Uh, sorry, chapter 35, verse 29. 25, verse 7, 35, verse 29. But when you die, the repeated phrase in the Old Testament is, he died and went to his fathers. And Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 28... Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is life beyond the grave. And the epistle of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So while death is the consequential punishment for sin, it's not the end punishment for sin. It's not the end judgment upon sinners. So we've entered into death in our sins and we continue to live here on earth dead in our sin, trespasses and sins, while we face the reality of the death of our bodies in that we will then be taken afterwards into the judgment of death that we yet face. Now all this understanding of life and death and eternity is caught in that wonderful little poem of Ecclesiastes 3 that we read earlier, which speaks of eternity in our heart. Now the author of Ecclesiastes is writing about the meaninglessness of life. And if you've got atheistic friends like Mr. Sam DeBrito and others, you need to take them to Ecclesiastes because it'll rock their socks because they've got no idea that the Bible actually talks about this kind of stuff and deals with it. I mean, a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The kinds of meaninglessness of existentialism has already been written in the Bible and is dealt with back there. They've just got no idea because they haven't read the Bible. But Ecclesiastes is all about vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. Everything goes around and round and round and nothing ever actually goes anywhere. We're born, raised, reproduce, age, and then we die. And our children who are born with a raised, they reproduce, age, and then they die. And, and it just goes on and on. That makes life all meaningless, especially our death. If you're rich, you die. If you're poor, you die. If you're good, you die. If you're bad, you die. If you're wise, you die. If you're foolish, you die. Whether you're energetic, you'll die. And whether you're lazy, you'll die. It doesn't matter what you do, you'll die. So it doesn't matter what you do, does it? Because in the end, you'll die. After all, we're all just standing in the crematorium queue. Some of us are further along than others, but we'll all get there eventually. The traffic jam does not kind of ever go away, but on the other hand, you will get to the front of it finally before you go up into, into ashes. We all die the same. And then we all get put in little boxes in a little wall with inscriptions about our life and if they write a lot it's so small no one can read it and if they write a little then it says that we didn't do much and anyway it doesn't matter because who reads the inscriptions on crematorium walls other than very nerdy historians. <laughs> and when we... We just picked an engineer then. And <laughs> when we all die and it's exactly the same, then who inherits our life's work? It's all meaningless. And yet at the same time, we keep seeing meaning. For time is not just a succession of events. Time has meaning. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. There's a time to kill, there's a time to heal. There's a time to love, there's a time to hate. The action does not have the meaning apart from its context. The action doesn't have value apart from its context. The action doesn't have any meaning or value apart from the context of its timing. There is a right time for any action. And there's a wrong time for any action. And your perception of the right time and the wrong time for action shows that there is a meaning out there that you are feeling, that you experience, that you know. And therefore in the timeliness of events, we see that there is meaning and value in the events of life. But what's the value? What's the meaning? And here we're introduced to a very sad verse. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We have eternity in our hearts. We have a universal sense of timeliness. All people everywhere want to say that's a 
good thing. Even Mr. Brito wants to say having a child is a good thing. There is a timeliness to things where you want to say that's right, that's wrong. It's in our hearts, this sense of eternity. But the trouble with this sense of eternity that God has put into the hearts of all people everywhere is he hasn't explained to us what it is. We know that there's a right and wrong. Mr Grayling knows there's a right and wrong. He can't work out any philosophical basis for it, or he tries to, but it's hopeless. We know there's a right and wrong, but we have no basis for right and wrong in a world that's meaningless. If there is no meaning to life, if there is no truth to life, there is no right and wrong, how come we all know there is? Because Ecclesiastes says God has put it into our hearts without telling us what it is. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can see in the timeliness of things that there is a meaning, but we just don't know what the meaning is. Well, where can we ever find the meaning of life? You see, well, the atheist says that there is none, because the answer comes right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, for he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Where is the meaning of life? It's not in you, it's not in me, it's not in life. It is in God who has made it all and who's made you and who has made me. Take away God, you won't have meaning. There is no meaning without God because God is the creator of the meaning of life. Life is only meaningful because God has created us. And it's in the law of God, the judgment of God, that our meaning will be seen. We are meaningful because we have been created. We are meaningful because we are ruled over. We are meaningful because we're going to be judged one day. Our meaning of life comes from outside of this life, from eternity. That's where it comes from and will be seen after death in the judgment of God. And that is why the resurrection is so important. For in the resurrection, we find God entering into time of this world and bringing eternity into effect. Suddenly we come in touch with eternity as the new age, the eternal age, the spiritual age commences and we have been raised up to sit with Christ in that eternal age from which now our life in this world will never be the same. And so we now become the Lords over time. But I think what would be timely now is if we sang. <laughs>